And so this is what the Christian says to death. He says, come on, death, what can you do to me? The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. Death, what can you do to me? As you seek to strangle me, as you seek to take me out, what can you do to me? All you're doing is introducing me to Jesus. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ, even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kyra Jomo, and I've been going to Gateway for the past two summers. The scripture reading today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 to 20, and I shall be reading it from the New International Version. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. So as we look at our text today, it's going to be a continuation of what we looked at last week. Last week, we asked ourselves three questions. What is faith? What is the gospel? And how do I get the gospel into me? How do I get it into my bones? How do I become someone who is spiritually shaped by the gospel story that I not only know the gospel, but that I become a witness to the gospel in everything that I do and say? And so I shared this with you last week. I shared uh, a bit of a quote. I said, our future hope should dramatically shape our present character and the way that we live our lives today. Isn't that true? That the death and resurrection of Jesus declares once and for all that Jesus isn't just our moral teacher. He's not just our guide. He's not just our friend. He's not just some sort of uh, moral guru. But he is the one who was put on a cross. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And there he stands victorious to this day at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. He is the sovereign ruler of all. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How should we live our lives if the gospel is true? So here's what we're going to do for the balance of our time today. We're going to look at Paul's argument that the resurrection of Jesus is historically reliable. And then we're going to ask this question. If the gospel is true, how should it shape us? How should it shape us? So last week, the question was, how do I get the gospel into me? How do I get the gospel into my bones? This week, in the continuation of that, the question is more, what does it look like for me, practically speaking, to walk with Jesus? What are the evidences that we should see in, in terms of the way that we talk, in terms of how we use our time and our energy and our focus? Practically speaking, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? 
So if you got your Bibles, turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to start at verse 12. It says this. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are truly lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. We're going to keep reading in just a second, but you get the sense here from everything we learned last week, verse 1 to 11, everything we're looking at this week, verse 11 to 20, it's all focused on one central thing. Here's the plain main thing, and I put it this way in your note sheet. The main point is that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. It is a historical fact. Jesus and the apostles are adamant about that. But of course, that is a contested question, is it not? In fact, it is one of the leading questions when it comes to apologetics, which is just a fancy word for giving a defense of the Christian faith. We, we are constantly asking that question. Is it true? Is it historically reliable that Jesus Christ not only lived and breathed as a human being? Most people believe that. Almost everyone, you know, atheists, uh, people from other world religions, they believe that Jesus was a historical person. But did he die and rise again? Is that a historical fact? And scripture says, yes. Yes. And this question needs to be grappled with by both Christians and non-Christians alike. And Paul wants to help facilitate that conversation. First thing that we should know, one of the reasons why I love the book of 1 Corinthians, is because 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the first written account of the resurrection of Jesus. And it is assumed that it was written no more than 15 years after the ascension of Jesus. Now, here's why that's important. It's important because, just like we read in uh, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, go look at it again, he, he tells these listeners, these readers, that uh, Jesus first appeared to Cephas, that's another word for Peter, and then to the apostles, and then to more than 500 men and women all at the same time, which means you can go ask them. You can go ask them because most of them are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for some of them have passed away. But most of them are alive. Go ask the question. Go talk to them. And that's really, really important because, again, here's what it meant. It meant that eyewitnesses could be questioned. You could go ask them. And many of them were not just questioned, but they were tortured and put to death on account of their witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And number two, all the claims of the apostles and eyewitnesses were scrutinized publicly, not behind closed doors, but out in the public. It's like, if you ever wanted to fabricate a claim, 
There's, there's a couple ways that you can do that, but let me just share with you a couple ways that you don't do it. Number one, don't name eyewitnesses that are still alive that you can go and talk to. Number two, don't make eyewitness accounts in groups. Like, just say, like, Peter was a witness. John was a witness, right? It was always, like, a one person at a time. Don't give groups. Don't do that. And certainly, don't write it all down and widely distribute it for everyone to see and to hear and then to be able to publicly scrutinize. Because then what's going to happen? They're going to go to those 500 people. And they're going to say, what happened on that day? Then they're going to go to the next person. What happened on that day? Then to the next person. What happened on that day? And then they're going to try and look for inconsistencies with respect to the story. And yet, what happened? All of them went to their grave claiming that this was true. How could that be? Let me share a story with you that I think really communicates this well. Who here by a show of hands knows who this guy is, Chuck Colson. I see a lot of men above the age of 50. That makes a whole lot of sense. Some women. Uh, some of you know this story, especially if you're 45, 50 plus, you probably remember this. Chuck Colson was the right-hand man to President Nixon. He was once known as Nixon's hatchet man while he was a president. president. And uh, he gained notoriety during what was called the Watergate scandal. And again, those of you a little bit older, you'll remember this. Well, eventually, because of that scandal, Nixon and all of his loyalists were found out, and Nixon eventually resigned as president. Colson was part of the Watergate scandal, and then he got the longest prison sentence of the whole group. But during that time, Colson's life was falling apart, and he was hitting rock bottom, and during that time, he did what a lot of us do when we're at rock bottom. He looked up. And by the grace of God, his heart was changed, and he came to know Jesus. And in fact, he later started a new ministry that perhaps many of you have heard of before called Prison Fellowship. Um, he's written a lot of books. He's done a lot in terms of apologetics. Um, many of you perhaps know him. He's very well known to this day. And at one point in time, he was talking about this exact chapter. He was talking about 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection of Jesus and how so many people struggle with its claims. Did the resurrection of Jesus happen? Like, we all struggle with that, don't we? Even Christians have doubts. Christians and non-Christians alike grapple with the resurrection of Jesus. Is it historically reliable. And then he said this, he said, the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus in his life was the Watergate scandal. Hmm. Interesting. Why would he say that? Well, let me tell you the story. Watergate was all about a group of thieves who were paid off to try and sneak into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in what was called the Watergate office building, hence the name. And the thieves were caught, and those involved, they, of course, tried to cover it up. But eventually, it imploded, and even Nixon, the president of the United States, resigned. But here's what Colson began to realize from that. Would, would, you, would you agree with me that the president of the United States is one of, if not the most powerful positions in the world? Right? Would, would we agree with that? Like, I can't think of any other position in the world that's more powerful than that. And yet, think about this story with me. Nixon is the most powerful person in the world, and he has not 
12 disciples, he has seven loyalist disciples. Seven people that he trusts. And they're all in cahoots together trying to cover up this story. And then the unthinkable happens. Those who are trying to discover the truth, they start to squeeze. And then a dam in the break, or, or uh, there's a tiny little break in a dam. And then another, and then another, and then another. And all it took was three weeks for the whole truth to come out. All of it. Now, what were the motivations for people to come clean and to tell the truth? Well, there were threats for the loss of their pension, the loss of their job. There was threats of a prison sentence. Like I said to you, Chuck Colson, he got the longest sentence. Guess how long he got? Seven months. Seven months. Most of them got no prison time, but the longest that they got was seven months. And still, even with like, these aren't like dire situations. It's not death. It's you might lose your job. You might lose your pension. And it took three weeks Three weeks for the truth to come out. And he said that this is just a perfect example that if the disciples were in cahoots together along with these 500 other people, and if it was just a fabricated story, then certainly someone would tell the truth. Certainly someone would break. But none of them did. Now let's think about the disciples of Jesus for a second. How did they initially respond when Jesus was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember the story? They all fled. They ran away. And then Peter, who is the closest disciple to Jesus, he denied Jesus three times. And then during the sentencing of Jesus, as he was carrying his cross to Golgotha, the land of the skull, all the disciples scattered and they fled for their lives. And we pick up the story later. Where are they? They're all hiding away, huddling in a house. The door is locked. The blinds are closed. They're afraid for their lives. They are freaked out. And even Jesus foretold this when he quotes Zechariah 13. He says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's what happened. Not the brightest moment for the disciples. But then what happened on Easter Sunday? Jesus showed up. And he starts walking around, having conversations with his disciples and with, eventually, the 500. Let's, let's pick up and look at this again. Verse 3 in your Bibles for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So history tells us that every single one of the disciples not only refused to back down from that claim, but they accepted whatever consequence came on account of making that claim. Whatever the consequence. And when you think about the consequences, we know from church history, from extra-biblical sources, that every single one of the disciples turned apostles minus John died as a martyr. 
They were beheaded, they were tortured, they were ripped into pieces, they were crucified upside down, they were tortured until they screamed. All the most heinous, gratuitous things that you can think of, the disciples turned apostles went through that. Now, back to Chuck Colson and his six friends. The risk for all of them was the possibility of jail time. The possibility that they might lose their pension. The possibility that they might lose their job. But what was the difference with the disciples? It wasn't a possibility. It was the inevitability that they would be put to death. Poverty, scorn, torture, death. That's what they received. And yet, not one of them came clean. Not one of them said, I admit it, it was just a big hoax. All the disciples put me up to it. We stole the body. We hid it in a ditch. Please just let me go. Not one of them said, all right, you know, I know you gave Judas 40 pieces. I want 4,000 pieces. I know you're trying to snuff out the story, right? I, I know you're trying to get rid of this religious sect called Christianity. Here's what you got to do. Give me the house of my dreams. Give me health, give me wealth, give me happiness, give me notoriety, give me power, and then I'll tell you the story. None of them did that. Every single one of them went to their grave. How is that possible? How is that possible? It must be because they interacted with, seen, and touched the resurrected Jesus. That's the only logical explanation. And so what Colson said at the end of talking about this, he said, some individuals might lie to get away with something. Some individuals might cover up the truth and bring it to their grave, especially if it benefits them in some material way. But groups never do that. Groups never do that. Especially when people start to squeeze and there's incentives for them to come clean and to tell the truth, they will take that pass. And yet none of the disciples did that. None of the 500 witnesses did that. They all went to their graves. So here's where Paul goes next with this. Basically from here, Paul says, if the tomb isn't empty and Jesus is still dead, then here's what it means for Christians. And then, then he walks through it. Now, some of you are going to recall that last Easter, I preached on 1 Corinthians 15. So I don't want to spend too much time recounting this. You can go back and watch it later. If you haven't seen it before, go watch it. But just to have it fresh in our minds, I want to fly through six points with you really quickly. So here they are. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, number one in your note sheet, faith in Jesus is worthless and Christianity is a pipe dream. We get that from verse 14. Look at your Bibles with me. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your what? What's the word? Your faith. So is your faith. And then he says it again in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If the, if the tomb is not empty, then everything that we're doing as Christians is totally worthless. It's a worthless lie. It's a pipe dream. It's of no value at all. And the Bible is a lying book written by liars. That's what it is. It's not good, moral, helpful advice. It's a book of lies. And that leads to number two, the Bible is a book of lies. If Jesus is still dead, then it can't be a good book. 
It can't be some sort of fictional book that we all say, you know what, it's not entirely true, but there's glimpses of, of good things. Like we can take this, that's good. We can take that, that's a good piece of moral advice. This is beneficial to society. No, no, it's a book of lies. Do you not know what scripture says? It is intentionally deceptive if Christ has not been raised. And then number three, part and parcel with it, if Christ has not been raised, then Jesus himself is a liar or a lunatic. Don't tell me the Bible is filled with good advice because the first thing I'm going to say to you is, do you know what it says? Do you know what Jesus says? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus makes these bold, hairy, audacious claims that he is the sovereign king of the universe. So here's what we got to know. C.S. Lewis coined the phrase, Jesus is a liar, Jesus is a lunatic, or he is Lord of all, and we should all bow down and worship him. Those are the only options. And that's an indictment on all of us in this room, Christians and non-Christians alike, because most of us want to make Jesus our cosmic consultant. We want him to be someone who gives us good moral advice. And yet, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we should all bow down before the throne and worship him because he is sovereign over all. Who is he? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord and God? And number four in your note sheet, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then heaven is a myth. Heaven's a myth. Look again at verse 15. If Jesus is still dead, then the, then, then the dead are not raised. Verse 18, if Jesus is still dead, then those who are dead in Christ are truly lost. If the tune isn't empty, then there's no logical reason to believe in any of this. Our loved ones are gone. We will be gone soon, and we might as well live up our lives to the best of our ability because we only get one turn around this little globe, and then we're gone too. Live your life. Enjoy your life. And tied to that number five, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then Christians need a hug. We need a hug. That's what we need. Verse 19 if the tomb is not empty, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Again, he doesn't say, well, if, if it isn't true, then the Bible's still a good moral book, good pieces of advice, a, a good kind of uh, barometer to live our lives by. No, no, of course not. You might as well experience YOLO. You only live once. Live up your life. You think about what, um, what the Apostle Paul says later. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy our lives. In fact, let, let me just kind of try and show this. Uh, for those of you, let, let me say it like this. How many of you, by a show of hands, know the name of your mother? Okay, 98%. Some of you, um, we'll, we'll talk. Okay. Um, how many of you, by a show of hands, know the name of your grandmother? 
Okay, that's what I thought. Pretty much all of us, not all of us. Now here's the next one. I expect some, some hands to go down. Who here by a show of hands knows the name of your grand, great-grandmother? Less than half. Okay, we're getting there. Who here by a show of hands knows the name of your great-great-grandmother? All right, we have like three people interested in ancestry. The rest of us don't know, all right? Really interesting. So here's what that means. And I'm not trying to rain on your parade, but every person in this room in a course of 70 years will be forgotten. Maybe there's one or two of you, you're going to be like super rich and successful. You're going to be like Michael Jordan or Elon Musk, and maybe you'll last a few extra generations. But all of us are going to be forgotten. If that's true, and if Jesus hasn't been uh, raised from the dead, then you might as well live your life. All your behaviors, all your actions, everything you've ever done or will ever do will be forgotten. Sorry, but you'll just be forgotten. Live your life. Live your life. Enjoy your life. You only live once. Unless Jesus is who he says he is. And that leads to number six. If Christ has not been raised, then personal sacrifice is useless. Useless. It's interesting what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 30. Pick, pick this up with me. I got it on the screen too. He says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Again, it's, it's the same question and appeal I made to you earlier. Like, what advantage do the apostles have to claim the lordship of Jesus? They didn't get health, wealth, and happiness. They didn't cover something up to save their own skin. All they get for claiming Jesus is Lord of all is scorn, punishment, poverty, and death. That's all they get. So Paul's asking, like, what's the benefit of me doing this? And then verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then you might recall when we were in our human sexuality series, we talked about those, those dead influencers. We talked about Nietzsche. We talked about Freud. We talked about Darwin, all these guys. And basically, they have a very humanistic view. Like, we're all going to die tomorrow. Live your life. Don't be concerned with moralistic, righteous rules. Don't be concerned with church. Don't be concerned with Ten Commandments. Don't be concerned with how you live your life. Live your life. Enjoy it. Because tomorrow, you're all going to die. You might as well enjoy your life. So if Christ has not been raised, then personal sacrifice is useless. If Christ wasn't raised, you might as well party hardy. I don't think that's what Gen Z's say anymore, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Might as well enjoy your life. If he's still dead, I don't know why I would ever even give a dime away. But if he's still alive, I don't know why I stop at a tithe. If Jesus is still dead, then I don't know why I would ever forgive an enemy. But if he's still alive, it is an indictment on me for being so slow to forgive those who have wronged me, knowing how much I have wronged Jesus. If Jesus has risen from the grave, it changes everything. It changes everything. And so here's how I want to spend the last portion of our time, looking at this one question. If the gospel is true, how should it shape us? How should it shape us? What's the evidence of our faith 
that we should see by virtue of our actions, our speech, our words? How should we conduct ourselves as people of faith? And Paul has an answer to that. Pick up with me at verse 52. Now let's start at verse 51. Listen, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then... The saying that is written will come, death has been swallowed up in victory, which is words from Isaiah. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That's Hosea. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, here it comes. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you see the perspective that Paul has? If Christ has been raised, then we should have the sort of perspective that says, life is short, eternity is long, why don't we live that way? Why don't we live that way? Why are we so consumed with the speck of time in comparison to the eternity that is laid out before us? Why are we so consumed with the speck? With the tiny little minuscule amount of time that is laid out before us? Listen, if if Christ rose from the dead, then what it means is our life is minuscule in comparison to the hope of glory that is laid out before us. So I want to give you three challenges from the end of this chapter to take home with you and to stand in front of the mirror and to review. Here is the first one. If the gospel is true, how should it shape us? Well, here's the first one. In the face of death, we should stand firm. We should stand firm. Christianity alone in all of the major world religions sees death as a defeated enemy. Did you know that? We're the only ones who view death as a defeated enemy. That's what Paul just said, right? He just quoted Isaiah. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? He's taunting death. He's, he's sticking out his tongue at death. Like, who has the audacity to do something like that? To be so bold, to be so audacious, to be such a a ridiculer of something so powerful. Death is the ultimate enemy, and he just sticks out his tongue at it. How do we have the power and the courage to do such a thing? The answer, the Bible says, is that Jesus has broken the bond of death. And if Jesus has died so that you don't have to pay anything, for your past sins, and he has raised you up now as a risen savior, then my question to you is, what can death do to you? What can death do to you? I want to read a passage of scripture to you. This is uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. 
really interesting where Paul goes with this. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What? To die is gain? If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, he says, better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Oh, people of God, we need to have the perspective of Paul. To live is Christ, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's not loss, it's gain. And so this is what the Christian says to death. He says, come on, death, what can you do to me? The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. Death, what can you do to me? As you seek to strangle me, as you seek to take me out, what can you do to me? All you're doing is introducing me to Jesus. And so now the way that we view death is it, it's the, a dark tunnel into the ballroom of the presence of Jesus. That's death. That means we can taunt death. We can look at it square in the face and we can say, what can you do to me? What can you do to me? If you kill me, I get to be with Jesus. And if I have to wait a while, then it means fruitful labor for me, for the kingdom of God. I get to bear witness to what God has done so that others may know who Jesus Christ is. Then you can take me home. Either way, to live as Christ, to die as gain. And for those of us who have the gospel deep in our bones, I'm telling you, the perspective that you have is going to be to say that life is short and eternity is long. And I want to live my life that way. With respect to my finances, with respect to uh, how I conduct my life, with respect to forgiveness and relationships, how I use my time, all of it, I want it to be centered on one thing, that I have eternity laid out before me with Jesus. And I want that to be my focus. So practically speaking, here's what this looks like. The psalmist says in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts to learn wisdom. And I love the way that Martin Luther, the reformer, translates this. He says, teach us how to think about death so that we might learn how to live. Teach us how to think about death so that we might learn how to live. I think that's incredibly practical. It means two things at exactly the same time. Number one, it means we will not have fear when it comes in the face of death. And number two, at exactly the same time, it means we will have an incredible sense of urgency with respect to how we live our life today. We're here for a, a, just a, a brief moment in time. Let's make the most of it. Let's make the most of it. So we have no fear, but we have incredible urgency. Both of these things at exactly the same time. I love the way that James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it. He says this in James 4. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money, <laughs> you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. Does anyone in this room know? What's going to happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Lord, teach us how to think about death so that we might learn how to live. So that's the second one I put in your note sheet. If the gospel is true, here's how it should shape you. You will begin to make the most of your mist. You'll make the most of your mist. The reason we reject 
the YOLO lifestyle. The reason why we with Paul reject verse 32, what he says, uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is because we have eternity laid out before us. Right? And we have that perspective. So I want you, I want you to recognize that, that today is the second Sunday after Labor Day, and, and you all know what that means. I think most of the people in this room, perhaps like three weeks ago, you were camping somewhere, you were sleeping in, you were enjoying enjoyable beverages, you were resting, and then September hit the calendar and you went from zero to hero. You just like, now suddenly your calendar is filling up. It's go, 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 go. Every single day. You feel the urgency. You feel the pressure. And if you've got kids and you feel like you're chauffeuring them around all over the place, you just feel it. You've got school. You've got extracurriculars, volunteer activities. You've got work. Everything's piling up and you feel the stress and the pressure. That's what September brings. Yay. You feel that. And yet here's what my encouragement is to you. As you go about having to say yes and no to things, because you can only use the same hour once, my encouragement to you is to consider asking this question with respect to every consideration that you make. Am I making the most of my mist? Am I making the most of my mist? Because some of us are working hard. We're, we're obsessed with trying to accomplish our goals whether it's work or, or hobbies or, or extracurricular activities. But have you ever stopped and asked, what difference is this going to make in eternity? The things that I do, how I spend my time, how I don't spend my time. Let me give you one example. Parents, most of you are focused on getting your kids all the right advantages doing what it takes to get them into the right university or school, into the right programs, the right activities. What are you doing? You're, you're trying to set up their life well because you love your kids. You love your kids. and I, I get that. I totally get that. I got four kids. My oldest is only 10, and I already feel that pressure. I don't even have a teenager yet, and I feel it. I feel it. And yet, here's the question I want to ask you. By virtue of your own actions, would your children say, that you are someone who is more concerned with the mist that is your earthly life or with eternity that is laid out before you? And same question, by virtue of your actions as a parent, would your children say that you're more concerned with the mist that is their earthly life or the eternity that is laid out before them? How are you filling your calendars? How are you choosing to emulate the gospel in terms of how you conduct yourself with your time, your energy, your talent, your resources, your finances? Do your kids see this? Is it on shining display? So let me, let me just give you a, an example of this. Maybe some of you have heard this before. Um, there was a story of a 13-year-old boy, and uh, he was the, the leading 100-meter dash runner in all of Canada. And he was milliseconds away from the national record. But he had a mom who was a, a, a devoted Christian. And she said, you can never run on Sundays during worship. And you can never run on Wednesday nights during catechism. Beyond that, you know, you, you can do those things. I, I encourage them, but we've got to have priorities. That's the priority. But here's the problem. At the national championships, 
The last event of the season where there would be much notoriety, much fame, an opportunity for him to break the national record in front of headhunters and coaches. Man, this would like blaze the path for him for the future. It was on Thursday morning. And that meant he had to drive on Wednesday night, which meant he would miss catechism class. And so mom, she sat down with her son and she said, listen son, unfortunately you're going to have to miss the national championships. Have any of you heard that story? Yeah, no one heard it. Do you know why? Because it's not true. (laughs) I just totally made it up. I heard that from another pastor who shared it with me and I cried laughing on the floor. Because it's a point, isn't it? Who in their right mind, what Christian parent in their right mind would make that decision? And yet, isn't that the point? Life is short. Eternity is long. Are we living that way? And are we emulating that for our kids? Are we showing them what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus who has eternity laid out before them? My friends, only two things last forever. It's not your golf game. It's not sports cars. It's not extracurricular activities. It's not how good you are at a certain sport, and it's not Tahiti vacations. There's only two things. The Word of God and the souls of people. Are you choosing to invest in the right things? Number three that's tied to this. Don't wait. Don't wait. Paul ends all of this with verse 58, and and I love what he says. Let me read it one more time to you. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And so here's my encouragement to you. If you've never made the decision to follow Jesus and you're ready to make that decision today, don't wait. Don't wait. Make, wait, make that decision today and then tell a Christian friend about it. Come tell me. I'll, I'll walk with you in your faith journey. Or if you have someone in your life who you, you dearly love and they don't know Jesus and you've been praying for them, don't wait Invite them in. You have today. Tomorrow isn't promised. Don't wait. You need not fear death, but you also have an incredible sense of urgency with which to use your life because your your life is here today, gone tomorrow. You are a mist. Don't wait. Or if you have irreconcilable differences with someone or you are just really struggling interpersonally with someone and there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness, don't wait. Don't wait. Life is too short. Have the perspective that says, so far as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace in the same way that Jesus brought about the gospel of peace. I want to bring about the gospel with respect to my life. I want to be a person of peace. Have that conversation today. And don't be the kind of person that says, I'm going to store up all my wealth, all of my treasure, I'm going to enjoy my life, and I'm going to expect someone else to dole it all out after I'm gone. Don't be that kind of person. Be insanely generous. Nothing's coming with you. Not your bank account, not your house, not your car. Nothing comes with you. It's all gone. 
in the twinkling of an eye, in a flash, it's gone. God says, use these resources to build up my kingdom with the day that you have today. I love the way that Jim Elliott puts it. He's a, a missionary. He says this, make it such, Lord, that when it comes time in my life to die, all I have left to do is to die. Julie and I tell our kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And all the parents said amen. So here's where I want to end. We see this most perfectly, not in the mirror. <laughs> not when we say, I can do this. We see it most perfectly when we look at the person of Jesus and what he has done for us. Who used his brief stint on earth not to pile up treasure and honor and power, but to pour out his life as a sacrifice for you. Hebrews 11 says, who for the joy set before him. What is the joy set before him? You, you are. Who for the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame so that we could be set free. Here is a man who did not fear death, but here is a man who had such an incredible sense of urgency for the sake of the building of the kingdom of God. My friends, only two things last forever. The word of God and the souls of people. Let's build every chapter of our lives on those two things. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.